Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Michael Yejevsky to the show. Michael has an eclectic professional background. He was an actor in his youth, worked for years as a tour guide in Rome, and even ran his family-owned art gallery. Primarily, however, he's been a professional writer. His credits include, among many others, Drunk History, Dog Bites Man, Viral on Full Screen, and the original Vice Studios. He has a graduate degree in political philosophy from the University of Michigan, and another graduate degree in 20th century European history from Pepperdine. I met Michael nearly a decade ago when he asked me to read one of the leading roles in a workshop of one of his screenplays. We've remained Facebook friends since, and that's how I came to know about the extraordinary turn his life took since I last saw him. I'm thrilled that he's agreed to come on the show and share the entire story for us now. It's an honor and a pleasure. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you, thank you, Nicholas. When I hear that narrative, I am, I hate to say it, I'm genuinely interesting in hearing what I have to say. Oh, wow. Well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Whatever kind of confidence I can instill in you that you have something worthy of being heard, I'm happy to be, I'm happy to do it for you. Thank you. Thank you. So we were just talking about this off mic actually a little bit, but your last name is difficult to pronounce. So most people talk, do they call you Michael Jersey? Is that one of the things you like to go by? You just like Jersey's the short? <sighs> I've been Michael Jersey in most of the writing career. And that's because actually Jersey Conrad is a writing influence, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, cool. But it started with uh, Michael Jersey writing wise, but I've been Michael J my whole life. Okay. Literally Michael J because I was always in a class with other Michaels. So there was, you know, a Michael, a Mike, a Mike Strauss and Michael J. All right. So, I got to ask, why two different grad one graduate degree in a non-entertainment field, I get. Two graduate degrees in a non-entertainment field when you've spent so much of your professional career, at least from the way I understand it, pursuing entertainment. How did that happen? So the first one was on the tail end of a sped up undergraduate degree. So the first one was after three years I basically was a graduate, and my professor at the time at U of M, University of Michigan, was Tom Connor, who said, hey, we're starting a graduate program, and if you're a year ahead, and this seems to come pretty easily to you in the sense that you even say that reading comprehension has always been something that just came naturally to you, you don't need to study hard, would you be interested in pursuing a graduate degree. And this was the Marshall School, which now has become a little more business-oriented or almost entirely business-oriented. But back then, for the first, I think, three years of that development, it had a history graduate program led by my favorite professor. So I said yes. And then when he told me all about it, with every time he spoke of it after that, I was less and less interested. But <laughs> I managed to do it over the course of a <laughs> year and a half, two years, and get that vital, vital degree under my belt. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's very clear from your story that that has been an important launching pad for everything oh. that's come after. Oh, of course. I mean, all the, yeah, uh, Oscars, Emmys, I wouldn't have gotten them without without that. Absolutely. Um, that I, I should have mentioned the Oscars and the Emmys. Now, looking back on the background, I probably should have mentioned that. 
that's a, you know, that'll be a post-recording edit. No that sounds problem. good. No problem at all. That sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so that one is the political philosophy one, right? The second one is the political philosophy. And the second one was when I actually came back from a long extended uh, trip to Europe. I mean, I can get into that a little yeah, later. Yeah, but yeah, yes. Yeah. And I came back thinking that right around the original WTO protests, the things that I needed, I knew my history, but I needed to get a little deeper into political philosophy. I needed to learn more about modern fascism, as in the first, let's say, 30 years of 20th century, but even more so globalism and the WTO protests and how I could somehow become, I mean, global activist. And so I decided to go the way of getting a political philosophy graduate degree from Pepperdine. And the reason from Pepperdine was because I didn't want to go to USC and I wanted to stay in Los Angeles. And I'd like to commute up the coast every day to mm. a university in Malibu. Oh yeah, that's beautiful there. I would go there sometimes when I first got out here just because it was like, there's a park right across the kind of like the highway from Pepperdine. Oh yeah. And oh, uh, yeah. oh man, I would go up there all the time. It's just so, it's so picturesque. My God, it's beautiful. What was Playhouse worst? Playhouse Worst. Yes. What is Playhouse Worst? Playhouse Worst <laughs> was when I decided that I was going to A, stay in Los Angeles permanently. B, I was meeting new people through a, a mutual friend, my longtime friend from high school, uh, one of my dearest friends, my best friend to this day. He had some friends in the comedy world. And one of them was a young comedian named Melissa Paul. And she was all about plays, putting on 99 seat shows at the complex on Santa Monica. And it basically us three kind of working together. At one point, we traveled to New York. She was there longer term. We got to see some really amazing shows there. And I, when I really began writing, my first things that I wrote were plays and they were originals. And either I was in them sometimes or for the most part, I wanted to try stage direction. And we decided that the best way to get started was not to be auditioning for theater work in Los Angeles, but to just create a very, very grounds up basic theater group. And we looked up a bunch and believe it or not, Playhouse Worst was our terrible kind of sarcastic joke about Playhouse West. Mm. And that was it. Like if they were Playhouse West, we'll be Playhouse Worst. Hopefully some people either make the mistake of attending ours, thinking they're attending a Playhouse West, <laughs> or they get the joke, they're comedians, they're, you know, audiences of comedians, and they sort of come in and see what really basic 99-seat theater, I mean, on a good day, we half filled it. So let's say 49-seat theater right. on Santa Monica. And that was some of the best times when I look back. Uh, that's lovely. All right. Well, right now, got to know what you had for breakfast, Michael. So what'd you have for breakfast this morning? What I had for breakfast is what I've had for breakfast pretty much every day, certainly the last four years, but I think it went well before then. Every single morning, I have a hard-boiled egg, half a banana, and half an avocado. Really? Every that morning? every single morning, yes. Have you gotten the hard-boiled egg to the point where you almost see no variation? Have you been doing it so much that like every egg you open up or you peel, it peels perfectly, 
it opens up exactly the same amount of hardness. Are you at a complete perfect replication level of this breakfast now? I didn't want to use those words, but absolutely 150%. I am a hard boil egg master. And <laughs> I, that's maybe the first time I've said those words out loud and I'm really proud. It's, yes, I, I'm certified. I mean, I should be certified. And I don't know which version of that I mean, but yes, every single morning is the same. And I'll even say when you said peeled, I crack it on top and I can slide off an entire peel. There is no like slowly, you know, getting the eggshell off. Yeah, it's a, it's a science. It's also, I'm very much like a routine. Every morning is the same. It has to be for, for me because the egg also, just as another note about my breakfast, it's not all in one sitting. So the egg is first and maybe about 15, 20 minutes later is when I have the avocado and the banana. and just kind of spread it out over maybe the first hour of my day. Last question about the egg. Do you boil one egg every day so that it's warm? Or do you boil a group of eggs and then you eat one of them warm and then you eat the rest of them cold? Neither one of those. I am one of those that at the beginning of every week on Mondays, usually I hard boil six eggs and I keep them in the refrigerator. And as the week goes by, the first two days, I eat a whole egg right off the bat. The next maybe four is when I cut it in half. And again, just make sure everything's good after being in the fridge for a few days. It is, of course, and then eat like that. But I do not eat warm ones in the morning. They are they're not so much for the egg experience or the culinary, you know, masterpiece that is a hard-boiled egg. It's just to get that protein in me first thing in the day. I really appreciated it. I love hard-boiled eggs. I am often frustrated by my inability to hit the ones I want on a consistent basis. Um, there's nothing more frustrating to me. Well, I mean, this is clearly a, an exaggeration. But for the sake of the drama of this conversation, there is nothing more frustrating <laughs> to me than peeling part of the egg white off while I'm peeling the egg. I feel like I've, I feel like I failed my breakfast a little bit and I'm really, I feel like I want to take your class. You should take my class because our whole purpose is our alpha and omega. Is the way the egg looks <laughs> when you hold it in three fingers before you peel it should be the exact same way the egg looks when it's been peeled of its eggshell. That is the ideal. Wow. There should be no nicks, scratches, indents whatsoever. I even roll off with my thumb that kind of on the bottom half, there's a little bit of that, I don't know if it's skin or yeah. like, I yeah. roll that off and make sure it's it's just good to go. And that gets eaten by me in about, you know, at most 20 seconds. Yeah, Not right. to pretend that I'm, <laughs> I'm using a knife and fork. I just, I just get that where it needs to be. Michael, let's dive into the big stuff, okay? Sure. How and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Wow. Let me think about how and when I was introduced. The first introduction was definitely grandma the first time she visited, which I think was in 1987. She introduced me to the idea of a spirit, to the idea of some sort of, whatever the term, higher power, God. She was very, very privately religious. And I obviously, I remember that the way she even expressed herself and her life, her childhood 
that came across. I always associated my grandma with knowing about God or someone who introduced me to the concept as a child of God. And how old were you again? I was young. So this must have been six, seven. So this is 86, 87, something like that. And this is your father's mother? No, this is my mom's mom. And did she speak English or did you speak Polish with each other? I, yes, I spoke Polish with her. She did not speak any English. She'd never even left Poland until she visited us here in Los Angeles. Did your mother and father meet in Poland as well? Yes. Originally, I'm, I'm born in Poland. I'm oh, see, a, this is, okay. And how long were you there as a child? My parents, always the joke I do here is my parents snuck me in in a loaf of pumpernickel. So they brought me when I was two on a, on a TWA, or actually, no, on a Pan Am flight. And they came in 1982 after six months asylum outside of Vienna, Austria. Wow. And straight to the West Coast? This is a good story. So they knew just from certain, not even direct contacts in Poland, but friends of friends. They roughly knew a few people in New York and a few people who lived in Los Angeles and they couldn't decide. And my dad says that when they were outside Vienna in the mountains in their asylum, they flipped a coin and heads was LA, tails was New York, and it was heads. And I always say that if it had been tails, I would be an utterly different human being. Wow. Like in every way, the way I speak, what I think about, what I dream, what I did, what this interview right now would be about, if it was even happening. Wow. Wow. And your parents were not particularly religious. They didn't carry on any of the religious banner uh, or traditions. <sighs> my, they were not. No, in the past, my parents were sort of your, your typical kind of late 60s, 70s, Eastern European, quote, radicals. They were certainly not overtly religious. In Poland, there was obviously, even to this day, 97 something percent Catholic, but it was just topical. I don't think they necessarily believed in God when they were young, no. Can you locate what that meant to you that your grandmother was introducing you to these ideas or to this type of feeling? And did that feeling anchor itself in you in any way? Or did it just kind of come through and go out and then you would re-engage with these ideas later? It definitely made a mark on me. It being something that I hadn't individually, intimately felt from a loved one made its mark. But I didn't, you know, it's, it's one of those, it's a long story for, for where I ended up with that and for what reasons. But I do know that that was, when I think of it, I think of it as, and I know this sounds so cliche, but it's just a dim light that never went out. No matter what my worst moments, my darkest moments, you know, teenage years into 20s, etc. knowing that about my grandma influenced me, inspired me. And also I never forgot it. It was always, it was always there. And even as a child, I understood it. It made sense about my grandma, given what she had been through and and her life and how she was to me. 
And do you mind if we go back to that again? What are what would you say you held on to? Was there a form it took in you in the dim light of your youth, the way you articulated it? Was it Christian specific? Was it something else? I'll put it this way. My parents were outdoors people type. I wouldn't say environmentalists in the way we understand it today, but definitely any chance we got, we were outside, in the fresh air, in the natural world. Anytime we went somewhere, whether it was the ocean, whether it was up Angeles Crest, Mammoth, National Monuments, etc., I always thought that those places were beyond us people and that that must have been some sort of higher power, some sort of quote, at least at that time, God, because of its beauty, because of its size and scope. And I remember, like, like I said, I don't know if this is me referring to myself as a kid now using this terminology or how I thought of it then, but it just made sense. There's no way that this has anything to do with us people. This is beyond us. And so that's what it was. I remember God that I was sort of my eyes were open to from grandma was bigger than anything I could ever understand or, or see or even experience. But there are, there are the cues here on earth. Anytime you're in the ocean, anytime you're at the top of a mountain, anytime you're looking up at the stars in the sky or the moon in the sky, anytime, you know, the sun comes up. I remember even as a kid thinking that that has to do with God. Mm. Michael, this is going to be a little bit of an early break, but there's so much more to your story that I want to get into. And I want to take a pause right now and we'll, we'll dive in fresh right after this first break. Okay. Sounds good. See you in a couple minutes. At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about, what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all. All right, everybody, we're back with Michael J. And we were just talking a little off mic about him being an only child. And you mentioned also that your parents are both only children, uh, which is unusual in, in my life. I have not met many nuclear families like that. What was that like for you growing up? And how did that affect your upbringing? Well, obviously, as soon as I, even as a young child, as soon as I found out that, you know, there were others with much larger families and their parents weren't as involved. It's it's actually, there's a duality to it for me because my parents, yes, I'm an only child. So they're the only ones for me and I'm the only one for them, but they were very hands-off. 
So I was allowed to do essentially whatever I, you know, whatever I wanted within reason as a kid, but there was no helicopter parenting then. And I actually, in first grade, my best friend was Andy Campanella, who has, he had six brothers, six mm. older brothers. So anytime he invited me over, I, it was a circumstances and fun times I'd never experienced on my own at home. And B, I saw what it was, at least observed and experienced with him what it's like to have siblings. So that was just showed me how different I was and really made me aware at a very young age that being an only child is a double-edged sword in good ways and bad ways. Is there anything else you want to say about that? What the good is in that? What are the things that are particularly, did you know them at the time or you came to understand later? I... In my current circumstances, I cannot even express the gratitude I have for who my parents are and everything they've dedicated and devoted to me and how attentive they were and how loving they were and are. I always, again, this is, this is me as a kid, but I remember when I was young thinking that even though I knew other people who were also, quote, only children or didn't have brothers and sisters, I always felt, and I know this is nothing new, but I felt that my situation was incredibly unique, that I was somehow special, that my parents were who they were and that they were raising me how they were. And that when I went home, all the focus was on me, that everything about my schooling was about making those two people proud, especially as immigrants to this country. Even early on, I remember I remember thinking and knowing that even they grew up without brothers and sisters. So it was, you know, all the pressure. Like I remember early on as a kid feeling the pressure that not only the family names, not only those two people who, you know, came together and started a family, but immigrants planting a seed in the United States of America in, you know, 1982 was all focused on me. So there was like a, I remember early on sort of feeling moments of mild anxiety, expectation, a little pressure of the focus really is on me. And the way I kind of construed that in multiple ways throughout, not just childhood, but well into my adulthood to the present day, that's always been with me. Mm. Mm. Do you take any of these people with you throughout the rest of your life? Is the child you mentioned, the young friend, is that someone that's still your friend today? Yes. Yes, he is. He has two daughters. I, um, I was invited to his 40th birthday earlier this spring. I had to force myself to make it for a number of kind of, you know, uh, recovery reasons. But I was there when his mom spoke about him. She mentioned, she mentioned that I, I was there, you know, his, his seventh brother. Oh, wow. Um, How sweet. What she referred to me as. And uh, he lives, I think, a 10-minute walk from my mom. Wow. Yeah. I've always said that when you're an only child, your family of choice, those you choose to treat as your nearest and dearest, they are, they are immensely special people. Because I've always said this. I've said this to... Andy, my lifelong friend, I've said this to my best friend, I said this at his wedding as, you know, best man, that 
I know it's not literal, as in his parents didn't make me, but I absolutely consider him my brother, mm. period. Uh, that's not some, some phrasing, because I don't have a brother. I don't have a sister. And I very much want one, wanted one my whole life, whether I was conscious of it or not, whether it was at times deep trauma dealing with it or other times just something you say. It's the truth. And my nearest and dearest are like family. And I don't mean like family as in we have Thanksgiving dinners. I mean, I will do anything for them because they've shown that they do anything for me. That's beautiful. Okay, so there's this big thing that happens to you, and I we're not going to bring it out yet, but I don't want to waste too much time before we get there. So I want to go kind of through these next periods of your life. You mentioned a little bit about so we have high school. I don't know, is high school important in any other way other than how important high school is to most people? High school, when I think of it, it, it's definitely the breeding ground for things that came up. But high school was all about performing art. I mean, I was in every play, every musical. I loved that. It was really easy. I was one of those, for whatever reason, I didn't have to study. I didn't have to prepare for tests. It just came easy to me. So grades were totally good to go, but also innermost feelings sort of started the road with, uh, with drugs and alcohol. I mean, mm. that definitely started in high school for sure. I went to, you know, the Buckley school, which has sort of a reputation in Los Angeles for being, for example, I'll just say this, Reddy Stanellis went there and his book was based on that school. So mm. Mm. it's just one of those. And so then you go to college, things like the partying and stuff continue. You're doing really sure. well in school there. We talked a little bit about uh, you're at University of Michigan and then you come back to LA and you get another graduate degree at Pepperdine. So the travel to Rome happened in between those graduate degrees? Yeah, in between those. It was right when I, I actually ended the graduate school a semester early. So I at one point came back to give my thesis presentation. And then I went back. I was in I was in Rome for about a year, a year and seven months or so. And then these are just formative experiences. You're talking about global activism. Um, was that top of mind at that time? Had you given up on any creative pursuits and you were really all about how do I participate in making the world a better place at large? I mean, I wish I thought about it that way. I wish it had been even that well-defined, like in the sentence you just said, I wish I had had that. It was more, I need to be traveling. I stopped in Rome. Things came up in Rome that kept me there. But yes, I remember I, I did think of it sort of how I'd put it today is like a trajectory. If I'm in Rome, I'm closer to what I want to be doing in terms of WTO protesting and sort of just, yes. But did I have follow through? Did I actually do the work that needed to be done to attain that pursuit and goal? No, I was, I was messing it up already. Hmm. And then something brings you back. You just Pepperdine. Is that what brings you back? No, what brought me back was that my program in Italy ran out and I was no longer quote, getting the stipend payment. So I couldn't afford being there anymore. Hmm. And I didn't, and I just to prove what a, irresponsible young person I was, I didn't want to work 
Like it never, I never <laughs> fully, fully yeah. sort of put it together that if I want to stay in Rome and not do the tour guide stuff, you know, the luxury stuff that I'm doing, then I need to work. And that didn't sound right. So I'll just go back home and I'll figure it out there. That's funny. Okay. So you go back, you land, you know, camp out at your parents or whatever. Then you figure out, I want another degree. And then you go to Pepperdine. Is that kind of like how quickly it happens? Pretty much how quickly it happens. I just remember that I wanted things to be easy. Anytime things got difficult or too challenging or not the way I'd expected them, school was always the default second choice because it was easy. Like I could handle it. It was something you do and it gets you some sort of certification that'll lead to the next thing if need be. That's how I thought about school. I was never like, I wasn't an anti-school or like too cool for school. School is just the easy thing to do while you figure out something else. And I remember that was Pepperdine. And then you have relationships in here, but it doesn't sound like there's anything that's really life-defining, early broken heart. It doesn't sound like anything that's really steering the journey in one direction or another. Not that young. I had a few girlfriends. I had like the typical college long-term girlfriend. I had like a girl I was seeing in Rome. I had nothing special, nothing long-term. No, I'm not going to even pretend. And then the whole time, this is like the period of the dim light in the background, right? Occasionally, it's yes. sort of just you're in a moment that's sublime and you feel that maybe the dim light like turns up a little bit, but then you go on to the next thing and it just kind of keeps low in the background. It's not on the front of your mind. Yeah, I'd even take that a step further. That dim light, when it did shine some light, it was shining light on things that made me uncomfortable, that I was running or hiding from. Wow. So it was one of those where I can't go down there right now. I can't, I don't want this dim light to gleam fully because it will reveal what's in this basement, so to speak, and it's not good. Do you mind if you tell me what one of those thoughts would have been, what one of those things hiding in the basement was at that time? I mean, it was, I remember in senior year of high school, we went on a, on a retreat where you wrote a letter to yourself about where you are, what you're looking forward to. And I remember, I always remember that I wrote to myself that like, hey, hope you figure this out because the issue with drinking too much at an early age, drugs, not just a joint at a party, it's getting to be a little more. And even when I came back from Rome, when I was back in Los Angeles, I remember thinking this is becoming a problem. Mm. This isn't just collegiate party drinking at frat houses or something or like house parties or something. Mm. This was a little more, it was getting, it was taking priority. So I'd wake up in the morning and not my first thought is what am I doing that day or, you know, what's scheduled, this and this. First things first, got to have things in place in order to continue the day. And I remember that started to get a little, uh, a little intense. Hmm. And so you get through Pepperdine again, relatively yes. easily. Relatively easily. But and just so you know, instead of the graduate thesis, it was overwhelming and I was losing it enough that I chose the secondary graduate program, which is instead of a thesis that you write to get your graduate degree, you do 25 essentially book reviews because I knew that I no longer had the focus 
on a single topic. I was all over the place and I just needed to get this done. And what was easy for me? Reading comprehension. What was easy for me? Write something where it sounds like you read the book. And that was just to, by the skin of my teeth, literally get through that. Wow. Wow. Interesting. Thank you. So that's where you are. But then now you're already saying you're kind of skin of your teeth getting through these things already. You're going to leave the comfort of this academic structure, which has been a safe haven for you at different times in your life. And then right. you're going to enter into the pursuit of the entertainment <laughs> industry head on. And uh, now you're going to yeah. do things like form Playhouse Worst, and you're going to write a bunch of, you know, both screenplays and stage plays. And also, obviously, you're going to be in L.A. as an adult, as a young adult, and this is where your the drug and alcohol stuff is just going to go completely off the rails. This is what happens? You know what? I, I need you to phrase periods of my life. Um, word for word, <laughs> absolutely 100%. I don't have the sort of frame of reference to look at it that way. But yes, yes, in hindsight, exactly that. I made the mistake of as things got worse with drug dependency and drinking and just the what I thought was, hey, you know, I'm young, I'm mid-20s, this is totally normal. My solution, my initial solution to that is, so I'll join the entertainment business and I'll mm. become a writer. And I remember even thinking about it in moments of analysis, if, if I could even dare call it that. I remember thinking that the entertainment industry is just a means to an end. I'm destined, I want to be, you know, I want to write something that has some significance and meaning to it. I want to write a novel or a, or, or a play or something, you know, television, like some half hour show. That's just what I'll do because I can write. That's just what I'll do to get through all this, get all this figured out. And as soon as I'm in place, I will choose what to write. Mm. I will make those decisions. And that thinking, plus, like I said, Melissa, you know, my friend Al from high school, some of their friends, some names, not even as big names as they would become, but already noticeable enough for me. It just sort of clicked. And I thought this is the way not only to get what I want in terms of professional pursuits or earn what I want, but fix this needing drugs problem. <laughs> Where are you at in your life? What are those years? What are the actual calendar years of this? I mean, I meet you in like 2011, we said. Yes. 2011. So I would go back to 2004 is when I'm done with, we're finishing up Pepperdine. And then between 2004 and late 2007 is when things go really rock bottom in terms of addiction and, and that lifestyle. When Playhouse Worst gets founded and plays happen and I get through all those and seems to be going well, that's when I meet the people that ultimately will become, you know, either writing partners or collaborators. And I mean, those three years are also, I'd say, I wouldn't say the hardest because there's been other times, but the darkest, not dark as in antagonism or villainy, but certainly lost. That light is barely, barely flickering. And it's completely my own doing. It's dealing with anxiety, um, dealing with 
insecurity, dealing with a lack of confidence, dealing with the pressure of being an only child and the leisurely snobbishness of being an only child, not snobbishness in terms of earning, but it's all about me. And if it isn't, I feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And the irony, I mean, literally the irony is all that my drug problems did is cause me to become a loner, you know, solitude, avoiding people. And literally there's that me. And then when I need to be on stage in a play I wrote or directing or at a rehearsal, I'll get through it. And it was that kind of dichotomy. Wow. Okay. How does 2011 fit in? You're past some of the dark, these dark years? Yes. So at the very end of 2007, I finally, after, after trying a few times, I quote, get sober. I, I stopped drugs and drinking. I'd stopped drinking a while before. It was one of those I always say in terms of my addiction story, it's like whacking the moles. Like, okay, I'll, I'll do less of this drug and I will focus more on maybe having a drink or two at a bar or this, you know, it all had to go. I was either all or nothing. So mm -hmm. it all went. I, I managed to, um, I remember my best friend, uh, finally called me and goes, Hey, he was back in New York at this time. I haven't heard from you in six months. Where are you? What is going on? I said, I needed this time to get back to it. And that was sort of 27 into 28. And in mid 2008 is when I first started writing with Jeremy Connor. And I remember, I don't say this, I, I don't mean this in a cynical way, but I had to focus on my sobriety first. So my life at that point was focused entirely on what I need to do on a given day to not, you know, do drugs or drink. So when I got through the initial phase of that, the first maybe six, seven months, I uh, started seeing people again. I started reconnecting. I apologized to people, et cetera, et cetera, what you got to go through. And I decided, okay, I am going to try to really focus on writing. And there was one asterisk, one sort of special note that I carried regarding that is the things that matter to me, the writing projects that I care about, they have to be original ideas that I want to write. These will not be things that are being pitched at me by other people or what I learn from, you know, a general meeting with producers or something like that. This, these aren't assignments for whatever reason. And, you know, I, I can't look back now and, and think, oh, it was a mistake or whatever. I wanted to write passion projects. I felt like that was what the reason for my writing was originally. And so now I was going to live up to that to the best of my ability. And also it was no longer plays. For some reason, I walked away from plays just because that early in my sobriety, I associated them, unfortunately, with profound difficulties and mm. you know personal problems. So plays stopped and that's when we went into pitches, half hour series, hour series, pilots, screenplays. That type of stuff. I meet you sometime in there. We hang out, you know, there's the, the fun reading. And then there's still quite a few years in between there. Yeah. It's not until 2016 is what you're saying that you have a diagnosis. Yeah. Of brain cancer. Exactly. 
I mean, you're just building your writing career, you're booking jobs. These are some of the things I mentioned at the beginning of the show. You're making stuff on your own. You're staying sober, right? Yeah. Are you building any romantic relationships during that time? I have, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> these these years, it's it's one of those where I I mean, everybody says this, and I don't mean that if everybody says it, nobody says it. I believe them when they say it. I gave it my all. I I did everything that I wanted to do in terms of writing. I was there for others. I you know was a ghostwriter for many many people, many projects. I absolutely fell in love unfortunately that didn't work out because my love interest who i experienced quote falling in love with for the first time um that didn't go well they you know ended up uh in a cheating situation and that was uh, a heartbreaker i got through that no slipping with the with the you know drugs or drinking i got through all that i completely devoted myself to work double after that because it was the only way to really get through it. I had on and off relationships with others when I was ready. Unfortunately, we were on different sort of different chapters in our individual lives. So one time I was with uh, a young woman who wanted to start a family. I didn't feel that I was ready. Another time I was with someone who very candidly told me early on they were not interested in having children. Mm -hmm. They were a young woman who was not. And I got to the point where I wanted to start a family that didn't work out. And it just sort of went that way. So I would say the from when I started writing to my 30th birthday in 2010, all the way through to 2015 or so. 2015 is when, like I told you, I think when we first connected, people started to notice some depression issues, hmm. some pretty significant either public announcements of that, like on Facebook, very openly saying, hey, I need help, blah, 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 whatever, or individual interactions with people where they just said, you don't seem to have that, that spirit. And again, when I think about it, it could have been neurological, it could have been circumstantial, it could have been a combination of those things. It could have also been that I really came close. I had I had a number of projects that were in places where, believe it or not, you know, autobiographies, life stories, passion projects, and I mean passion projects, had full backing, ready to go, and things completely outside of my control happened. As an example, a just one example, laugh. The story that was roughly about you know, a group of young artists, not unlike Pee Wee's Playhouse. It took place in 1983. The producer attached said, we are about to develop what I see as madmen for the early 80s. And this vital producer involved, because he liked the idea so much, happened to be a guy named Bill Cosby, who went through some difficult issues of his own and everything flattened out. Wow. That type of stuff. It's just, you know, like those that has nothing to do with me, but it certainly has an effect on me. I wish I could look at it and like separate what I can control and what I can't. And trust me, I know that all we have is our reaction, but sometimes I had a number of those instances. So those first five years of the second decade of the 21st century, they were like that. And then 2016 happened and changed everything again. Oh, 
All right. That's a good place to, to hang it up for this section. And we're going to dive into that story after the break. Thanks, Michael. God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners, and it means a lot to me because I read them, and it's nice to read nice things. All right, everyone, we're back with our final segment with Michael, and we'll start where we left off, which is your friends and loved ones start to notice that you're just not yourself. Something is off. There's a depression. You're recognizing it, but you don't really know how to articulate exactly why it's happening. There's a lot of other stuff flying around in your life, so that could be the reason. How do you get from there to discovering that you have brain cancer? So the the depression I deal with how I've dealt with depression in my life, the sober time in my life. I seek meditation. I go for walks. I focus on fitness. I make those types of changes. There's one more little thing that starts to occur that really gets me troubled is I start having really, really significant vertigo spells. Hmm. And I remember one of the first ones that happened was actually writing with my writing partner And I'm looking at the computer and all of a sudden the entire world in front of me starts going counterclockwise really, really fast. And I lie down on his bed and he had to drive me home. And I was just like, okay, that hasn't happened. I put it together with a few years before when I was in Austin on a cliff diving accident. I know it sounds crazy. I hit the water really badly and I blew out my left eardrum. Oh, I was thinking maybe it has to do with that. I remember that when I went to the doctor after that, they said that luckily, yes, you had perforated the eardrum. You had burst it in three different places, but it healed on its own. When I went to the doctor now, they said, okay, it might be an inner ear thing. It might be BPPV, which is paroxysmal uh, vertigo. They kind of go, look, there's a lot you can do. There's a lot we can't do without, you know, going in. We don't suggest that. And one of the doctors suggested an MRI. And I remember even my initial reaction was MRI. That sounds really serious. And they go, look, it's just to get a better picture of that inner ear. We think it's the inner ear. So the vertigo got more and more intense. And I finally had an MRI. And that was it. <laughs> and that that was it. I'll never forget. That was I. my MRI was on. Unfortunately, I should have thought of it. I went on a 13th. It was July 13th of 2016. And the next day I got a call from my doctor. Actually, I didn't get a call from them. I called them. They said, you got to come in. This is really serious. And from that point on, and I just remember in that initial call, when they were reading the results to me, there was a lot of big words, but I picked up on the word glioma. And I said, did you just say glioma? And that's when Dr. Petrosian said, yes, Michael, it's this is pretty significant. It's rather large. We need to get you back in here and discuss what to do next. And that was, that was it. And I was at my mom's house picking stuff up when I made that call. And I looked back and my mom heard 
that conversation and was sitting on the couch with obviously, you know, tears. And that was it. That, that was that moment. Wow. How quickly do you go back in and fire up this surgery treatment? How fast does that happen? So basically, I went in the doctor the next day. She suggested the first thing you need to do is a contrast MRI to see if it's if the the tumor. I mean, the tumor, the original tumor was large, it was deep in the left temporal lobe, deep left side behind my left eye, like deep in there, the size of a plump. Whoa. So, you know. Are you kidding um, me? Yeah. yeah. Whoa, man. And it's one of those where they needed to check if it was, <laughs> I'm not going to get into the sort of uh, medicinal vernacular here, but they need to check if it's cancerous. All that means is if it's actively growing very, very quickly. With brain cancer, it's a little different. Like they can remove all they can. They can never remove it fully. So I went in the next day for an MRI. It came back as non, quote, non-cancerous. So from that point on, I researched and went to, you know, I mean, countless doctors. And finally, my initial surgery to remove it was August 30th. So it was like about a month and a half after I found out. And then for about a year and a half, I was okay. It was uh, an MRI every, you know, once a year just to just to see what it was. And then there was significant growth at the end of 2018. And I had another surgery, which changed the diagnosis from, again, sorry for the vernacular, a grade two astrocytoma to a grade three anaplastic astrocytoma, which just means that just because we took out this tumor over here, now there seems to be another one over there. And it's one of those. And that, that was 2019, January. And then after that was eight weeks of radiation, eight months of chemotherapy. And that's my new normal. That ended end of 2019. And since I'm just trying to, to get back to a new normal. It's been challenging in the specific circumstances of 2020 so far. Mm. But um, I mean, there's so much I could say, but that that's sort of how it went. Everything about me since July 14th changed, certainly. Um I mean, obviously, what I focus on, what I do uh, professionally. Um, and what are those things? Well, I, you know, for a number of reasons, but the entire, like I said, those first five years, it never worked out, came close. While I was going through the initial researches, surgery, surgery recovery, which took a good few months for me. Obviously, my writing partner and I, we went our separate ways. He got into other stuff. And I just came, I don't know if it was a cathartic moment. I don't want to say I came to terms with it, but I did not go back to writing. And it was a combination of two things. And I don't say this again. There is no pessimism here. There is no cynicism. I'm not being critical of anyone. But, you know, my manager left, my agents walked away. And when I reached out asking for trying to develop a few things that had kind of been put on hold when I, when I found out, none of those worked out. So I just kind of thought, 
the writing, the industry, quote, career was before all this. And now with a limited amount of time left, I don't, I won't be continuing that. And so it's actually, this is a, a beautiful, if this were to become a story, this would be a literary second act into third. Also keep in mind, I didn't even mention this, but coaching tennis in coaching tennis, I met a, she was a senior, my second year coaching tennis. She went on to become a neuro-oncologist, which literally means a brain tumor doctor. And I ran into her. Hmm. She from Facebook knew about what was going on. And when I said, hey, I know this is crazy, but I'm looking for any kind of writing work or just something to do with writing. She goes, oh, yeah, you know, I a college friend of mine, he started a business of like college application essay specialist, that type of stuff. Maybe I can connect you to. And for the last few years, I've been doing I've been doing that. I am now helping ESL students from foreign countries usually write their application essay responses, personal statements, personal insight question responses. So I'm still, I no longer write my stuff, but I still am involved in quote writing. And I remember I told the case manager, the founder of this organization, when he was asking what types of students, he looked back at my career and he said, oh, you know, anybody, I, I figure, you know, USC film school, that type, you'd like those students. I said, I'll take any student you send my way, but I'd actually prefer hard sciences, the doctors, researchers, engineers of tomorrow. I want to help those who are actually in the hard sciences as opposed to the liberal arts. And I just remember, I'm not even going to pretend it was because there was a part of me that would hope that maybe I helped a college student who one day was involved in some types of cures or treatments for these types of illnesses that we have. Wow. I can't help but um, want to just highlight the particularly fun through lines of this, helping students from different countries, of which you are, child born somewhere else, and also such an important part of your story, and also that you're back in a kind of pseudo or direct academic career, something that's always come natural and easy to you. So it's uh, there's some delight, I suppose, as I listen to a very difficult time in your life that you you find, does it feel easy and does it feel light as you do it? Does it feel as easy and light as those school days did? Again. Again, Nicholas, it's it's incredible. I've never even put that together like that. But yes, 150% in terms of, I don't know if I'd say that it, quote, feels easy, but in terms of, I feel comfort. I feel a sense of, dare I say, meaning. Mm. I certainly feel at ease when I am on a Skype or Zoom meeting with students and we're going over their work. And some of the work that I've looked over and helped edit and revise, it's been incredible. The stories that I've read, the the expressions I've been exposed to, it's it's yes, yes. It it's definitely it reminds me of that kind of safety that school provided me. And now I'm just 
I'm not even going to pretend I'm on the other side of it in terms of describing myself as a quote educator or mentor or teacher, but certainly this is something given my current conditions, this is something that I can do. This is something that I want to do. It still has to do with my writing ability. I'm not saying my writing success for career, but the ability to put together sentences into something that makes at least a little sense. And the best part about it is it's not my writing, it's someone else's writing, mm. someone else who has it all ahead of them. That's what really, that's what really like, I try to take a step back after every essay writing or essay tutorial, college planning, whatever the reason for the meeting is, I step back and go, everything that I've already been through, getting into college, going to college, the unintended consequences, that's all ahead of them. And there's something about that that is really, really inspiring. And again, just brings me to a an ease. For me, that's, I don't want to say most important, but I need that because the irony here, trust me, I think about it every day, where they had to go into now twice and where they had to do the radiation treatment, it's mostly like I'm not one of those who, you know, the left side of my body doesn't work the way it used to or even more serious ones where there's some sort of disability that happens. It's mostly emotion, memory, and anxiety, like psychological stuff. So I need, part of the reason, for example, I don't think I could do my own writing is because the expectations that would go in that, it would create a level of discomfort that would actually cause me to, you know, have some serious, serious regression. Hmm. Um, so it's one of those. Wow, man. Yeah, it's the entire experience here. It, it really focuses me on a day to day because every day is a little different and the recovery is much longer term. So I've done my best to create a routine in my life. Like when I was describing breakfast, the reason that's the breakfast is A, because obviously protein and potassium, et cetera, those are just sort of things that I've read about that help with recovery and healing, et cetera, et cetera. But it's routine. Anytime I'm outside of it, that's when things get a little um, frustrating these days. Wow. Michael, where does, what's your status of your diagnosis now at the at post the end of 2019, you know, walking into the beginning of, of this year, 2020, what situation are you in? So, I've been asked this question in all sorts of different circumstances, and I'm always very careful what I say here because I've noticed that people, they don't want to hear what I'm going to say. So I just want to make sure that what I say is, I always say that, like I just said, day to day. So basically now for the foreseeable future, however long I have, I'm on a three month, every three months I get an MRI to see what's going on in the brain. And that is effects from the radiation, effects from the cancer, which although we're trying to remove as much as possible, it, it is still there. So see that. And that's basically it. The reason that I have you know, use the word quote terminal in terms of this is just because there's no way to remove it entirely. So this is a condition that I have for the rest of my days among the living. 
And that's all I mean by that. So every three months, an MRI, and I try to find normalcy, continue my life for as long as that is. You know, I'm not going to pretend that I haven't gone down the Google wormhole in this day and age of looking at what those numbers are. I'm not going to pretend that I don't have occasionally even, no joke, last Friday to the Golden Girls theme song, a complete breakdown. Hmm. Like, you know, just break down, get it all out, and sure, you know, whatever need be. But that's where it is. And I will do everything that I'm able to for as much time as I have left. And that's that. And then I always finish with when I wake up in the morning and the last thing I do before I go to bed, I thank God for every day of life that I am given, period. That day of life, period. And I am grateful for the life I have. And I accept what my life today is, period. So that's my answer to that question. That's where I am right now. Is the light now just on full blast? The dim light that had been hovering and almost extinguished or unnoticeable at one time. How does that light live? I mean, you know, here you say, I mean, this is very clear. And I've seen this in your Facebook posts, which is one of the reasons, obviously, that I wanted to connect with you and see if you were interested in talking to me. Do you want to tell a little bit about how that light has turned up? Like, how bright is it in your life? Um, I mean, when I think about how I would say this or how, how, how I phrase this, everybody's experience is, is obviously uh, different, individual, um, based on their own circumstances. I certainly believe in God. I certainly believe that all I ask for, like when I, when I pray, I'll put it this way, when I pray or when I meditate, the only thing I ask for is God's will for me and the power to carry that out. Now, obviously, that phrasing I've gotten from something else in my life, but nonetheless, that's what it is. Whatever my purpose is, and that's not my decision, but whatever I'm here for, for however long I'm here, I just pray to know what that is. And I don't even mean consciously know, as in I could write a Facebook post about it. I just mean I want to know deep down inside. I want to feel like I have a purpose. That's it. And I pray for the power to carry that out, whatever that means. Whether on a given day that just means being able to get through a vertigo spell because, you know, again, ironically, now the recovery from treatments for the brain cancer in some ways has caused, you know, consequences much worse than what originally helped me discover hmm. the tumor. Hmm. Or other days where, you know, I'm needed as, you know, Michael J has become increasingly Munkle J to a number of different people, both hmm. as a godfather my best friend who literally is my landlord upstairs. He lives in the house. I live mm. in the bottom studio. He had a daughter two years ago. I'm her uncle. We play in the driveway every afternoon. How sweet. You know, these types of things, whatever it is, that's, that's all I ask for. That's all I ask for. That's the only aspect of my prayer that is, quote, 
I don't mean this. I'm not being this hard on myself, but myopic as in it's about me. Everything else is either gratitude for others or just thanking, thanking God for this day of life. I mean, whatever, how, like I said, I don't know how to phrase this. I know what I'm thinking, but, but, but talking about it just seems to kind of diminish its impact. Trust me, this is, this is in some ways, I, I think this is all I have. And in that sense, I'm absolutely pleased with that being all I have because it's all I need. And I know, by the way, Nicholas, I just got to say this. I know I've never mentioned this on Facebook. So the fact that we have the light as a metaphor in this conversation we've had, let me tell you just a little detail. My grandmother passed away a few years ago and she lived a long life. She passed away. It is Polish tradition that to this day, my mom, her only daughter, you know, to my mom, I mean, they had a relationship that close. They had a relationship I'll never even, you know, fully understand. It was just extremely close. It is Polish tradition that every day at sunset, until she goes to bed, my mother lights a candle hmm. in memory of her mother, my grandmother. This is something my mom has done every single day since early 2012 when my grandmother passed. Wow. The picture behind that light is a picture of the last time I was with my grandmother, just us two. So the fact that you've been mentioning this light and we've had it as a metaphor, and that is something that when I think of my grandmother, when I think of the love for my mother and her love for her mother, when I think of what my grandmother meant to me, and in obviously the context of this conversation, just bringing up that she was the first person to consciously expose me, even as a child, to the concept of God, to the promise of God, to the necessity for a belief in God, that that is every single evening since 2012. And that it's not just a picture, like inadvertently, my mom didn't just pick a picture of just her mother, just my grandmother, mm -hmm. but specifically us two. That's, that's one of those things that I will never think of that the same way as a result of this conversation. And I thank you for that. That's very beautiful, man. Well, what a sweet sentiment. Michael, it's such a powerful experience to be a listener to a story like this. It's an honor, man. It's an honor because I think that I want to live a life as present as I can be and to be thinking about the finite nature of what life is, even as I am quote unquote healthy without any apparent or impending um, dangers, I'm trying to live a life that's more aware, the existential nature of my life. I'm trying to embrace it. And I'm so drawn to a story like this because certainly not by choice. You have been put in a position where you are so keenly aware and it is deeply impressionable and powerful 
to in some ways touch that story. And I guess at this point, all I want to say is thanks. Thank you for sharing all that stuff. You know, you are, you are very welcome. And if I may, um, if I may say to you, thank you for letting me express it and beyond just express it in terms of thinking about it or, or, you know, not being able to not think about it, so to speak, to sometimes just say it out loud and to say it differently each time based on my circumstances right now, based on what I've been through versus what I, you know, potentially project. I'm always reminded all I have, but I know you know this, all we have is our reaction. We don't determine what happens, but we definitely should be focused on how we react. I am not obviously, uh, you know, perfect at this. This has been a difficult situation at times, a situation I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. But at the same time, in terms of putting certain aspects of a person's life, in this case, my own life, making them absolutely clear and even simplifying them, and I mean that in a good way, that has been something that I am extremely grateful for, all in all. So thank you for just letting me express that. Because like I said, every time it's different and every time it's truly, I mean, in a good way, therapeutic. Mm. Well, it, it certainly has that effect for me as well. I mean, it's a, it's a powerful experience and it's a lot to reflect on. And I just cannot tell you enough how much I appreciate it. And don't go anywhere. I'm going to say goodbye to the show, but we'll chat a little bit after I say goodbye, okay? Sounds good. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you all for listening. Today, I have the privilege of welcome... Oh, my gosh. I forgot to ask you how to pronounce your last name. Very carefully. Yes. Very carefully. <laughs> How do you do it? <laughs>